Welcome to another episode of Search News You Can Use with me, Dr. Marie Haynes. This episode is being recorded on Wednesday, April 15th of 2020, and it corresponds to our newsletter episode number 128, which you can find at mariehaines.com newsletter. So as usual, we have a lot of things to talk about this week, and uh, thankfully, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about is not connected to coronavirus. I know so many of you are working from home, are uh, potentially dealing with financial struggle as you've lost your jobs, Um, and it's always challenging to know uh, even what kind of tone to use as I'm recording this podcast. Uh, I myself personally have gone through so many emotional ups and downs with grieving for uh, the the amount of devastation that's happening in the world right now. Um, and then thinking, you know what, we're going to be okay. And uh, eventually, we're going to come through this. Um, and so today, I, I'll tell you, in all honesty, I'm in a good place today. This is, uh, uh, there's a lot of really good stuff going on in, in my life. Um, I'm starting to get back into a, a rhythm of uh, being active on Twitter, of uh, just trying to maintain business as usual, even though business is not usual. At MHC, we're still uh, we're still taking clients for site reviews. We still have people signing up for site reviews, uh, but we're definitely seeing a lot less uh, activity than we're used to. In, in the past. And so I, I feel for you, I know many of you, especially those of you who work with local clients, um, local businesses, you're probably seeing significant impact in your bottom line right now. Um, and what I've realized is, you know, there's not much I can do to change that <laughs> at this point. And so my goal is to um, give you the news. Those of us who are still able to um, have the privilege of learning SEO and, uh, you know, doing business with other businesses, uh, we still need to keep learning. And so this is my goal here is to um, just teach you as much as I can about what happened this week. And in all honesty, it helps me as well. Uh, me having this podcast on the same time, uh, the same day every week, it forces me to get into the groove of, oh, okay, Google did this. That could mean this. Or here's a Google announcement I need to know about. Um, so hopefully you appreciate that. And uh, if I do have some levity in here, it's it's not um, to belittle uh, the the grief that so many of you are going through. I, I, I just want to tell you that, that I really struggle with this balance of let's be happy and let's also be miserable <laughs> at the same time. Um, so let's uh, talk about what's going to be in this episode. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, EAT, you know me. <laughs> uh, this is one of the things that I've been so passionate about for, uh, gosh, over three years now. And uh, we have some new news from Google um, that uh, I'll share with you on EAT and whether it's a ranking factor or not. Uh, we have information information from a Google Help Hangout on whether guest posts are unnatural. You probably already know what I'm going to say about this, but uh, there was a little bit of a new slant on it, so I'll, I'll cover that uh, as well because it was a topic that got uh, some discussion going on um, on Twitter. Uh, very. Uh, 
not good news for a lot of you. Amazon appears to be cutting affiliate commission rates. I'm not sure if this is just in the U.S. Uh, or not, but this is a very serious thing for some of you. Uh, the news on this just came out this morning uh, as I'm recording podcasts, so you know I'll tell you the latest of what we know about that. And in the Q&A section, I'm going to have a really interesting question about whether we should be republishing our content on sites like Medium and LinkedIn uh, using a canonical tag to point back to our own site. Um, I want you to think about what how you would answer that. If somebody came to you and said, I'm thinking of publishing content on Medium and using a canonical tag pointing it back to my site uh, to help improve my SEO, would you say that's a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't know the exact answer to this, but I'm going to give you my thoughts at the end of this podcast. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what the algorithm's doing. We didn't really notice anything that we would obviously call a normal Google search update. If you listened to my podcast last week, I talked about um, you know some of the changes that we're seeing. We saw March 10th and 11th, there was a huge uh, variance in traffic patterns for most sites. And this could probably be explained by the fact that March 10th was when the World Health Organization uh, labeled coronavirus issues as being a pandemic. And yes, the world's search patterns changed dramatically at that time. Um, but we also noticed that March 23rd uh, was a date in which there was a lot of change in many, many websites that we really couldn't explain by current world events. Yes, of course, everybody is searching differently uh, now that many of us are on lockdown. But it just didn't seem to look like Google, um, we couldn't make it look like a normal Google update, uh, and it didn't look like it was just a change in search patterns. Um, and so we really think that a lot of what Google's doing here is connected to uh, something that's in their document on how they fight disinformation, where Google actually says uh, how they prefer, for certain YMYL queries, they prefer authority over factors like recency or exact word matches. Uh, and they even say that they do that even more, quote, while a crisis is developing. So we know right now that this is a worldwide crisis that's happening. Uh, and so Google has changed some things in regards to YMYL. We don't know exactly what that is. And I think I've talked about, I pretty sure I talked about this in last week's podcast. If not, it's in our premium newsletter uh, content uh, last week, just talking about what we're seeing with, um, you know, we had clients that were ranking for hand sanitizer uh, terms that all of a sudden, March 23rd, their posts were on, you know, page three and four instead of ranking on the first page. And the sites that are now ranking on the first page are truly authoritative medical sites. And we believe that Google made some changes in this time of crisis so that if you're talking about anything that's closely related to coronavirus, you're you're only likely to rank well if you're seen as a trusted, authoritative site to talk about coronavirus. And this is really important. In a recent Help Hangout, Barry Schwartz asked John Mueller this question. I'll read it out here for you. Is it possible that the tools that are tracking the Google search algo rankings, that there's so much change that perhaps maybe how searcher behavior is changing, that Google's algorithms are adapting to it? And he summarized the that was a little bit kind of weird word but um, 
He summarized it by saying, is it possible that searcher behavior is changing the algorithm itself? And the theory, I believe, is that um, if all of a sudden more people are searching for, uh, I don't know, make your own masks at home, that Google could eventually figure out that like, oh, you know, if somebody asked me, how do you make your own mask uh, a couple of months ago, I'd probably want to return content on like Halloween sites or sites that talk about, um, you know, making masks for costume parties or things like that. Whereas now Google's algorithms can figure out like, oh, if somebody's searching for how to make a mask, this is related to coronavirus. Um, and, you know, I think the algorithm just does that. I don't think Google said, oh, uh, you know, that's a specific coronavirus search. So um, we're going to change our algorithm in this way, you know, so that you don't rank. I do think that there are some searches, like I just said, that um, Google really, really needs to see that you're an authoritative site in order to rank you for these searches. But here's what John Mueller said. In general, we do try to adapt our algorithms to provide the information that's relevant for users at the time when they need it. So that could be something where uh, things are kind of evolving to make sure that people have the right information at the right time. Now, he went on to say that some kinds of searches would not be affected by Google making adaptations in their algorithm. Um, for example, if you were looking for a manual for a washing machine, that's probably not going to be any different of a search result than prior to uh, coronavirus being so widespread. But then he talked about how current events can change the landscape of search. So for example, um, if you did a search for Renee Zellweger a few months ago, you know, you, you would see things about movies that she's been in, maybe if she's been in the news, uh, you know, for something recently. And now, after the Oscars have taken uh, place, Renee Zellweger won, I believe it was Best Actress for 2020. And so Google's algorithms can recognize that most people that are searching for her, especially immediately after the Oscars, the awards show, they're probably looking for information on the Oscars and the fact that she won Best Actress. So this is not like Google said, oh, the Oscars are coming. We better push out a search update so that we show appropriate stuff for people who are searching for information on actors and actresses. Um, instead, it just adapts to figure out like, oh, when most people are searching for this keyword, this person, this business, this is what they're, uh, uh, you know, what they're wanting to see. So, you know, we don't think, again, that Google made drastic changes to the algorithm other than if you are trying to rank for very important YMYL content that potentially could be harmful to people. Now, I'm not saying your content is harmful, but let's say you had a post on how to make your own hand sanitizer. How does Google know that, you know, your blog post that comes from, you know, mummy blogger surviving during lockdown.com uh, is going to have accurate information that's actually going to protect somebody who wants to create their own hand sanitizer. Whereas last time I checked, Healthline had uh, the number one spot for DIY hand sanitizer. Um, I know a lot of you have criticism about Healthline in some aspects, but Google really likes them and they do a lot of things right in terms of what Google's looking for for EAT. So it's much easier for Google to say, you know what, in general, we trust Healthline. 
And even if your article on hand sanitizer is way more detailed, has you know way more helpful information in it, uh, hand sanitizer is probably seen as something now that is very important for saving lives. If you don't properly sanitize your hands and you're out spreading virus, you could potentially kill people. Uh, and so um, I think you get what I'm saying here is that Google's algorithms can change just on the fly as they start to recognize what is considered YMYL, what is really important. And in a time of crisis, Google has told us that if they're not sure, they're going to uh, default to showing sites that they treat as authoritative. Now, some of you are saying, well, how do you even become authoritative? I mean, I don't know when Healthline really started to dominate the SERPs. I feel like it was maybe four or five years ago is, is my guess. I could be wrong on that. Um, but how do you become authoritative? And it's primarily, it, it's mostly about other people recognizing you as an authority. Um, you know, 10 years ago, if I wrote something on SEO, you know, nobody would know who is this Marie Haynes person who has this theory on SEO. Today, uh, if I write something about, hey, I think EAT is doing this, I have a lot of people paying attention to that. I've built up authority over the years. And I'm not saying I'm the one who knows everything. I mean, I'm still learning all of this stuff the same as, as all of you are. Um, but it takes years to develop authority. And, um, you know, authority sort of comes from other people. The Quality Raiders guidelines talk about how it's important to see what other experts think of this person's content. So the way that I think I developed some level of authoritativeness in, in SEO is um, to write stuff and then it got picked up by, uh, you know, Barry Schwartz would say, hey, Marie Haynes uh, noticed this thing and he started writing about it. Uh, and then Search Engine Land, uh, you know, would write something and say, well, here there was this big algorithm update and Glenn Gabe said this and uh, Marie Haynes said this. Well, Google can connect that when the experts are talking about a Google algorithm update, they tend to refer to people like myself and Glenn, and, and there are others out there as well, who are seen as more authorita authoritative on this subject. Now, that doesn't mean that everything I write is perfect, everything Glenn writes is perfect. You know, we're all trying to learn this stuff when we have theories and we share those theories with people, uh, but Google's algorithms, and this is a part of EAT, A being the authoritativeness, um, and it's really, really strongly connected to links and mentions, in my opinion, and very, very hard to game. So um, if you're, again, authoritativeness is mostly related to other people saying, yes, she or he knows their stuff. Uh, and so if you're trying to build authority for your brand, for your website, for your own personal, uh, you know, for me, uh, for quite a while, my brand was my name. And now our brand is, uh, you know, my company, MHC. Um, if you're trying to build authority, the key is uh, to start creating things that get the eye of the experts in your area. That, um, you know, that, that, that people want to quote, that people want to reference, uh, that people say, you know, you want to get to the point that where you say something, people go, oh, this person knows their stuff on this topic and they said this. And so we should pay attention to that. Um, not an easy task to do, but it's certainly doable. Uh, you know, uh, so, um, gosh, I really varied from what I was going to say there, but hopefully that was interesting for, for some people. Um, and then speaking more about learning stuff from Google, uh, let's talk a little bit about EAT. 
So I was doing some research for, uh, I'm going to be on a SEMrush uh, presentation next week. Gosh, I think it's Monday. It's coming up fast. It could be Tuesday. I'm, I'm not sure on that, but that'll be in our newsletter. Uh, we'll have information on that. Um, and they're doing a whole thing on four hours, I believe, of EAT, where several speakers are going to be talking on EAT. So I was referring back to Google's blog post that they wrote uh, a few months ago on what webmasters should know about Google's core updates. And that blog post already had a lot of stuff on EAT in it. Uh, but I noticed that they added an update. And it says note, and in brackets, March of 2020. So given that we're just halfway through April right now, this is a fairly recent update. So here's what it said. Since we originally wrote this post, we have been occasionally asked if EAT is a ranking factor. Our automated systems use a mix of many different signals to rank great content. We've tried to make this mix align with what human beings would agree is great content, as they would assess it according to EAT criteria. Given this, assessing your own content in terms of EAT criteria may help align it conceptually with the different signals that our automated systems use to rank content. So we've had this argument for a while now as to whether EAT is a ranking factor. And here's the way that I look at it. EAT is like a collection of so many different signals. It's not like page speed where we could say, hey, Google has told us if your page speed is below a certain amount, I mean, they haven't told us the exact amount, but if you have really low page speed, that's a negative ranking factor. Uh, they've told us that if you are HTTPS, that's a positive ranking factor, although it's a very weak one, Google has admitted. EAT is not one of those things that you just turn on or off. And I think a lot of people sort of have this concept that EAT is just all about author bios that if you're a medical site and you have a medical doctor who has written your posts, that you automatically have EAT. And that's just one tiny component. Um, and so, you know, there's so much. I, I, I've essentially dedicated my life for the last three years, I'd say, on trying to unpack what EAT represents in Google's algorithms. Uh, and so I can understand why, you know, a lot of SEOs go, well, what is this vague EAT thing? I mean, of course, Google wants uh, to rank authoritative websites. They've always done that. The thing is, it's just so complex. And I don't claim to have all the answers to that. Um, but the things that we need to know are in Google's quality raters guidelines. Uh, I was just reading them again, um, you know, trying to do some research for, uh, for the SEMrush talk that I'm going to be doing. And there's so much stuff in the quality raters guidelines that is really, really good. And the guidelines, uh, it's important to know that, you know, it's not exactly, oh, the guidelines say this. So Google's algorithms have to be doing exactly the same thing. But instead, the guidelines help us to write, ask the right questions to do the right things on our website so that whatever it is that Google's algorithms are looking for, they're going to see us as a good, trustworthy source of information. Um, and so, uh, you know, did Google say EAT is a ranking factor? I actually find this kind of funny because when I read this paragraph and I tweeted about this paragraph, Initially, my tweet said, and then I, I changed the wording on it, was like, so you thought EAT wasn't a ranking factor. Google says it is. I mean, I think what Google said here is not like, 
oh, there's one single ranking factor that's EAT. So yes, EAT is a ranking factor. It's essentially saying like there's many, many components of EAT and EAT is the acronym we've used to describe these many components that our algorithms use. Like to me, that's, that's a ranking factor. However, when Barry Schwartz wrote about it, and I greatly respect Barry, and I'm sure he would be fine with me saying this, I don't have it open in front of me right now, but the title of his blog post was essentially saying EAT is not a ranking factor uh, because of what Google just said. So it's semantics. And I don't want to argue anymore about is it a ranking factor. We all know this is important. I mean, Google gave us a blog post that said, hey, if you're trying to figure out why you didn't do well with the core update, the vast majority of this blog post is talking about EAT. So if you're not paying attention to EAT, you should be. If you think EAT is just about having authors that have expertise in your area, that's a tiny component of all of EAT. We have a document at mariehaines.com slash EAT that we try to keep updated whenever there's new news uh, on the subject. And so uh, that's a good place to start if you're trying to uh, to learn more about it. And um, of course, reading the quality raters guidelines is a really good idea as well. The really interesting story in newsletter about how Bing ranks websites. Uh, Jason Barnard wrote this on Search Engine Roundtable, and it was based on a podcast uh, interview that he did with Frederick Deboe from Bing. Now, I haven't listened to the actual episode, uh, but the article was quite interesting. Um, here's some interesting points from it. One, for featured snippets, now we're talking Bing, not Google. Bing much prefers being accurate, fresh, and authoritative over having links. Uh, and I, we, you know, I really haven't looked in great detail about does Bing have a component of EAT? Do they have something similar? Probably. Um, so Bing has this whole algorithm that they call the whole page algorithm. And it starts with 10 blue links. Uh, I think most of you will know what I'm talking about. If you look back to the early days of Google, uh, you know, we would essentially just see 10 results on each page. And then things started sneaking in like different SERP features that uh, made it so that the SERPs that we see today would be nowhere near uh, similar to what we saw years ago. Um, so Bing starts with these 10 blue links as well. And then they have all of these different features they could add, such as featured snippets, like video results, image results, ads are another one of these features uh, that they can add. And what they do is they, they have a whole algorithm that figures out whether adding this feature would make the search results more valuable or not. And so one example that they gave was if you were doing a search for Beyonce, you're probably looking for images, videos, a little bit less likely that you're looking for informational content. And I think it's probably very unlikely that you're looking to buy something uh, from Beyonce or about Beyonce. I mean, it's certainly possible people do searches and they want to maybe buy an album or buy merchandise or something. But uh, most of us, if we've done a search for a, a person, uh, especially in the music industry, we're going to want to see music videos, um, images, things like that. And so uh, in Bing's algorithm, their algorithm can figure out that, oh, when people do this kind of search, we should be including image carousels and uh, video results as well. Um, what I thought was really, really interesting was the discussion on how Bing uses machine learning for their ranking. And I actually think 
this is different than what Google's doing, although who knows if Google has, uh, you know, made changes since the last time they talked about this. It was a couple of years ago, I believe, that Jennifer Slegg from the SEM post asked Danny Sullivan whether Google uses the information from the quality raters as a machine learning set. Um, and I've been interviewed by a couple of journalists about this because the, the prevailing fear is that if there's only a limited number of quality raters, if they have biases um, and those biases get used as a learning set for machine learning, then everything's going to be biased by the opinions of the quality raters. Um, now, it sounds like Bing's got a lot of different feedback systems that help to fight against that. Um, the machine learning basically, okay, so what they say is they use humans, which would be probably quality raters, to label uh, results in Bing as a learning set. And so they add these labels and I don't know exactly what the labels are, but, um, you know, just talking about, I would assume it's about, is this trustworthy? Is this, you know, different, uh, adjectives that they could, uh, they could use. Um, and then machine learning figures out the weights for each of the possible features that Bing could use, uh, to determine which is going to be the most valuable. Um, Although, you know, now that I'm reading this, I'm realizing this is not saying that Bing is using machine learning to show where to rank results. They're really saying they're using machine learning to learn which features like, oh, does this keyword deserve an ad carousel? Does this keyword deserve images? Uh, should there be a featured snippet for uh, this query? I think that's what machine learning is being used for here. Um, and then they say that while machines determine the ranking positions, then they use quality raters again to assess whether the new search results need tweaking. We know that Google does that, that they'll put two sets of search results in front of the quality raters, uh, and the second set reflects something that a Google engineer wants to change in the algorithm. And um, then they ask the raters, well, is the second set actually better than the first set? And if it's not, then they go back to the draw drawing board and say, well, how do we change this algorithm so that uh, the new results are better than what people had before? So I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I keep saying, I've said this in so many episodes, that I need to pay more attention to Bing. Uh, I just wish there were more hours in the day. Um, most of our clients are really heavily invested in Google traffic, and we're probably a little bit skewed in seeing that clients that are reliant on Google um, because uh, because of that. But um, yeah, I, I think if you get a lot of Bing traffic, it's, it's worth paying attention to uh, what Bing is doing and how they're uh, working their search results. Um, Google has launched a journalism relief fund. I don't have a lot of details on this. I, I believe it just came out. The news came out just recently. Um, if you are a small or medium local news publisher, you may be able to get some funding from Google. I believe Google wants to help keep local and, and small news publishers alive. Um, they're also, Google.org is giving a million dollars to the... International Center for Journalists and the Columbia Journalism School's DART Center for Journalism uh, and Trauma. Um, and so Google's trying to, um, you know, just help to promote more news stories. And uh, I think that might be useful to some of you um, who are running that type of website. 
Google started a blog series featuring case studies. And uh, I actually haven't read the full case study, although some of my team did and noticed that um, it was actually quite interesting. It was a, a job site in Korea that used the data available in Search Console to help identify crawling issues and eliminate duplicate content and implement structured data, things like that. Uh, and so they saw an, a substantial improvement in organic traffic and a 93% increase in signups. Uh, and so that's kind of cool. I think uh, I think I, I will probably go back and read that study uh, shortly. The thing that got the most attention, though, about this Google blog post is the fact that Google's linking out to SEOs. Uh, people get antsy about that type of thing. So I noticed a tweet from Gary Ish who says, yes, I added no follow to the non-Google links. Stop checking. Um, and so now if you get featured in these blog posts from Google, you have a no followed link uh, there. Um, so, uh, that said, if you want to be featured in one of these blog posts, John Mueller told us that they've actually paused, uh, search events. I think you have to, you have to, uh, somehow apply to, uh, be in the case study in one of Google's live events. Uh, so it can't be happening at this point because there's no Google live events. Uh, Bing announced some new options for webmasters to control snippets. This is very similar to Google's Mac snippet and uh, things like that. So if you are uh, concerned about your Bing presence, then you really should be uh, paying attention to this. As far as I know, it should just recognize the same changes that Google made. Um, although if I'm wrong about that, please somebody uh, tweet at me, Marie underscore Haynes, and um, uh, I'll comment on that in a future newsletter if, uh, if it needs to happen. Let's talk about guest posting. Are any of you still guest posting? It's not horrible. I've written some stuff over the years. I want to say 2014 is when I wrote uh, a blog post called, uh, oh, what was it called? It was about guest posting and everything Google had said on the subject. And really nothing has changed since then. Um, Google has usually maintained that the odd guest post here or there could be fine in their eyes. Uh, but if you're doing it as a way to build links, which is really why most people do guest posting, that that is against Google's guidelines. So I saw this in a Google Help Hangout, a recent one, um, and somebody was asking about, let's see, occasionally, like once every three months, I write a guest post on another topically related site. So this person's talking about just a few times a year, they get a guest post published on somebody else's site, and the whole idea is that, uh, and then they say the guest posts contain a link to their own website. So their guest posting for links. Um, here's what John said, quote, so in general with guest posts, you're placing the link essentially on another site. So in general, that would be considered an unnatural link. So I would recommend using no follow for that. So John's coming right out and saying, look, you're putting content on somebody else's site and you're putting a link in that content. That's unnatural. He says, if you're using a guest post and you're linking back to your site, then use no followed links for that. Um, now, will that hurt or help your SEO? John said at the scale that this site owner is doing it, remember they're only doing a few uh, a year for guest posting. At the scale where you're doing it, you probably wouldn't see an advantage or a disadvantage, okay? 
Um, advantages of guest posting. Uh, we're actually thinking, um, we, we've been in this place of me just trying to catch up with all the growth of our business. And uh, one of the, I suppose we could say the good things about coronavirus is that uh, I'm able to spend uh, a little bit of time each day able to spend is the wrong word, forced to spend time getting our business practices uh, in line. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do at some point is start doing some more guest posting. What? You know, I just said guest posting was unnatural in Google's eyes. Why would you do that? And the reason is the, um, in my opinion, is the reasoning behind it. So my thought is, if we... Um, if I write a guest post and it gets published on SEMrush or Moz or uh, somewhere that's seen as an authoritative place in SEO, that guest post brings attention to our work. Um, anytime in the past where I've written something on one of those sites, I get a load of requests coming in for people that want to hire us or people that have questions uh, about the work that we do. And so that's a good guest post. The thing is, you can't do that at scale. I mean, I could say, hey, I'm available to anybody who wants a guest post and my team and I could just pump out content and we could be producing 100 guest posts a month um, and getting tons of links, but that's not going to look natural to Google. So if you're guest posting in a way that actually truly brings you business, it may be okay. If you're not sure, um, we do offer a service at MHC where we review your links. And it's not a, uh, I mean, we do offer link by link full site link audits. Um, but if you want just to know like, hey, are my link building activities potentially going to trip uh, some sort of a filter or get on Google's radar, then, uh, you know, we can't promise you 100%, but we've seen uh, hundreds, thousands, probably millions of unnatural links over the years. Um, and so if you want the opinion of my team and I on whether your link building tactics are potentially unnatural, then you can reach out to us at uh, mariehaines.com slash contact or just help at mariehaines.com and, uh, and you can order that service to have my team look at your link building tactics. Um, let's see here. There was more in Google, the same Google Hangout, just talking about the importance of having good, unique content. We've written a lot about, uh, written, written a lot about this in newsletters. So really the gist of it is John Mueller saying, look, if you're building, I'll, I'll read his tweet here. If you want to attract users, then building the same thing as others have built isn't a good strategy. Make something awesome, unique, compelling, and of high quality and treat it accordingly if you want users to prefer, prefer yours over others. Uh, and I think this is, the problem here is that for many years you could build something that was essentially the same as every other product like that out there. Um, and if you could get enough links to your content, then it would rank well. And Google's moving beyond there. We know that Google still values links but they're getting much better at figuring out which links are actually true mentions for your product and uh, which are just there because of you built them for SEO reasons. Uh, so, we, and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up in podcast is we see it a lot. A lot of the site quality reviews we do are just these sites where we're like, yep, 
you're another lawyer in this city and you know, you're the same as pretty much every other lawyer in this city. Uh, why would anybody uh, choose your website to get information rather than everybody else who's out there? So really one of the keys, and uh, that's something we do in our reports too, is we, we brainstorm on like, what could we be doing? What could this client be doing to make themselves stand out? And we look at what's some content that actually attracted good links. And can, can we build more of that type of content? Can we uh, expand upon that? Um, what are competitors doing that is actually getting good attention? Could we do something that's even better than that? Um, that's the type of mindset that you need to have when it comes to creating content in this day and age of Google. Okay, now this is news that uh, is really shocking to a lot of people. Apparently, Amazon is cutting affiliate commission rates. So this is starting on April 21st, uh, which is very soon, <laughs> under a week from now. And um, I think, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think that this is only for the United States. Uh, I'm not sure if it affects Canada um, or the UK or like any other part of the world. But, uh, and again, this is news that just came out this morning, as far as I know. Um, many of Amazon's categories for affiliate payments have been drastically cut. Uh, if you were an affiliate sending, um, uh, requests to Amazon for groceries, which is, you know, probably one of the highest, uh, one of the most popular categories right now, Amazon's cutting their affiliate uh, commissions. Gosh, I think they were 8%. They're now 4%, or at least there's a 4% decrease in whatever it was. Um, I'm going to stop naming the actual um, channels and what the decreases are because I don't have those stats right in front of me, but they're in newsletter and I've tweeted about it as well. Um, now, I know this is devastating news to a lot of you. I, I think it makes sense to me why Amazon is doing this, although it's very, very unfortunate because some of you, you know, this was another source of revenue that uh, was very important. And now Amazon's essentially slashing uh, uh, the amount of money that you can get back from them. If you think about when Amazon first started, like Amazon was just another website. And I think that um, their affiliate program is what made Amazon expand into the giant that they are today. Um, so the affiliate program was like, hey, you know, you who has this website and has a tiny little audience, you can refer people to buy products on Amazon and we'll pay you a commission of whatever pe people you've uh, sent that have purchased products on Amazon. This was fantastic for Amazon for a few reasons. Number one, it got everybody going to Amazon. I mean, websites all over the web were saying, look, if you want to buy this product, here's where you need to buy it. It's on Amazon. And if I recall, I think when Amazon first started, their prices actually were lower. They actually took a loss on a lot of things. I know they did that for books um, where, you know, people were like, well, I can go to my store and buy this book for $19.95 or I can buy it on Amazon for $18, including shipping. Um, and so Amazon actually operated at a loss for a long time. And their goal, I think, was just for brand domination. And they've done it. I mean, everybody knows who Amazon is. I didn't have to say you can go to Amazon.com. I mean, people know who Amazon is. So the affiliate program was very important for building up Amazon's brand recognition. And now that's not necessary. You know, Amazon's got massive brand recognition. 
So people are already going to Amazon uh, to buy products, and I think they're probably um, having issues dealing with uh, the extra demand. And so it makes sense that they'd say, look, we don't really need the extra links from affiliates because we're already struggling to meet the um, orders that are coming in uh, without affiliates. So why would we pay uh, a percentage of this sale to to somebody else? I think you get what I'm saying there. I, I don't think I agree with Amazon doing it. I think it's cruel, um, but I think it's for business reasons um, and not just necessarily to make more money, but to actually survive. Can you imagine if Amazon went down uh now like let's say amazon just said forget it we're out of business uh i don't know what they'll do with the stock but you can't buy stuff here it would just be pandemonium you know i mean a lot of you are saying yeah that would be great because people would just come to my site to buy stuff but amazon is massive and if they want to make this change they're within their rights to do so i think so um hopefully that doesn't affect a lot of you but uh that's really really big news uh, we've been talking for a while about Chrome 81. It looks like it's starting to come out now. Uh, it's like a, a delayed rollout. Uh, I don't have it yet, so I haven't been able to test things. But Chrome 81 apparently has um, the the issue with if you have blocked or if you have mixed content, so images that are drawing from an HTTP source that uh, that's going to be marked, uh, that's not going to be displayed basically in Chrome. So uh, if you're seeing weird things going on with your images, this could be why. Let's talk about missing keyword ranking data. Uh, I saw some tweets from people saying they could not get data from their favorite rank tracking tools on certain keywords. And uh, the conclusion of the community was that um, a lot of these keyword tracking tools, they pull their data from Google AdWords or Google Ads, uh, the keyword planning tool. And um, so Google Ads has made it so that you can no longer bid on a lot of keywords that are connected with coronavirus. Um, it's very similar to, they do this already with tobacco, with firearms. There's certain things that you're just not allowed to advertise on AdWords, and that's to protect the uh, the safety of Google's users, I suppose. So as the ads keyword planner um, stopped giving data on this, a lot of the tools that rely on that data uh, no longer can have it. Um, I know one that I saw was SERPbook. I'm not sure how many of the tools actually rely on this data. So uh, if you're struggling to find um, certain keywords in your rank tracking, this is probably why. Uh, apparently in France, uh, Google has been ordered to pay publishers and news agencies for their content. I don't have a lot of details on that, but that's uh, that's a really interesting story. So um, if you have more on that and you're in France and actually getting paid by Google to write content, uh, I'd love for you to tweet at me uh, on that because uh, uh, that's a very interesting story. Um, let's see, there's a new study by the NN group that talks about how people read a web page online. I thought this was really interesting and I, I, I feel like, um, I'm going to leave this in newsletter uh, for you to read more details on, but there's uh, stuff that just talks about how we read pages on the web has changed and people are more uh, likely to want to see things like tables and 
pull quotes and ads even. Uh, not that people want to see ads, but they want to see this division of content and things broken up into very clear, noticeable chunks of content. Uh, so I found this very interesting, and I'd encourage you to uh, read episode 128 um, to get more information on that. Looks like Cloudflare is switching their services for what reCAPTCHAs they're using. Um, this is something that, uh, so Google is going to start to charge for their reCAPTCHA service. Uh, so I think we're going to be seeing some changes over the next little while on how these services work uh, because Cloudflare doesn't want to have to start paying for every single time they throw a CAPTCHA at somebody. Um, there's not a whole lot to add for local SEO news. We have some news in newsletter uh, provided by Sterling Sky um, uh, for uh, local news. And what they've said is that last Thursday, there was a little bit of some turbulence in the algorithm, but then uh, it, it really came down to nothing. So um, we're not saying there's any major so search change in local search at this point. Um, we've been talking for the last few weeks about how it's not possible to leave a Google review. Apparently that is starting to come back for some websites uh, in Google My Business, but uh, it doesn't seem to be widespread just now. It may just be for certain retail stores and restaurants. Um, and I think, uh, I've mentioned this before, but I think Google's just concerned that the vast majority of the reviews are going to be things that are uh, outside of the business owner's control. So, you know, if I'm complaining that uh, you weren't open when you're, you, you said you were uh, and you weren't open because the government told you you couldn't open anymore, um, you know, you, you don't want that kind of review uh, impacting Google's uh, opinion on how trustworthy you are. So um, if you're having trouble replying to reviews, it's still kind of a mess out there right now. I want to end podcast with this very interesting Q&A question, completely unrelated to coronavirus. Um, so here's the question. It's about publishing content on Medium uh, with a canonical link. I've read that some bloggers will republish their own content on Medium or LinkedIn with a canonical link and that both the original and syndicated posts can rank. Hmm. And from what we understand, Google only cares about duplicate content on the same domain. I'm not so sure about that. We have a network of sites that cover travel and outdoor topics, and we're considering syndicating all of this content with a canonical link to a hub domain that we own with the goal of ranking both pieces of content. I think we'll reach a larger audience and help readers discover uh, our other content on related topics. Um, so I think there's two things here. One is should we be publishing our content on um, other sites that are seen as authoritative, such as Medium or LinkedIn? And then the other question is, uh, would it make sense to just create uh, essentially a mini site for a particular topic um, so that you can publish content on that site and canonicalize it to your own site and hope that both of them rank. So where to start here? Let's talk, first of all, real basics about what is this canonical link? Uh, because I think some people who are listening to this episode are already lost in the, in the, in the wording uh, that, of this question. Not any fault of the person asking this question, just that I always use canonical links as my example of like, when you're talking on an SEO subject that non-SEOs um, really don't know a lot about like canonical links, uh, it can get kind of confusing. So 
a canonical. What this person is asking about is a, a cross-domain canonical. And the idea is that, uh, let's say I have a blog post and I publish it on mariehaines.com and I also publish it on medium.com. If you don't know, Medium is just a, a blogging platform. It got a lot of attention over the last few years and so it, it has developed a fair amount of authority. Um, so if I publish this blog post on both my site and Medium, I can put a canonical link on the Medium blog post to say that points at my site. And what that does is it tells search engines, I know there's two, con two copies of this content online, but when you see it, the one that's on my site is the one that all the signals should point to. And then what happens is if somebody links to the Medium version of this content, What's supposed to happen is those signals that pass through the link should pass to the canonicalized version, so the one that's on my website. Um, and what is supposed to happen is that it's my website that ranks. So let's say I put something on Medium and it got crazy attention and it got hundreds of links and those links are canonicalized now to my website. It should be my website that ranks well. Um, I say should because it doesn't always work that way. I've seen so many stories of people that have published content on Medium and they've put the canonical in and for whatever reason, only the Medium post ranks. I have seen other cases that you're talking about too, where you use the correct canonical link and for some reason, Google has chosen to rank both pieces of content. And I think this is what you were aiming for here. We'll, we'll come back to the idea of using your own domain. If you have content that's on Medium and it's canonicalized to your own site and both of those are ranking, probably what's happening is Google is not respecting the canonical here. If Google was respecting the canonical, then only one of those should rank. Now, there's a few reasons for Google not to respect the canonical. The most common reason is that the content's not exactly the same. And who knows, maybe you know Google's decided that um, the, your content, your post has, let's say, 50 comments on it and the Medium post doesn't. Well, those comments are part of the main content. And so Google would see that as two separate pieces of content. So, um, you know, if, if, the, if you're seeing both of the pages rank on Google, both the Medium site and your site, it means that uh, Google has not connected that these are the same post. And you don't want to have that happen. It, it's fine if the odd post, you know, gets syndicated. And, uh, you know, if Google's recognizing that you are the source of this content and you're consistently ranking number one, having the odd piece of duplication is not going to hurt. But I thoroughly believe that this is a part of the Panda algorithm. So let's say I had many posts that are both on Medium and on my site and Google's not respecting the canonical. Well, Google's got to decide either Medium or MarieHaines.com is consistently republishing duplicate content and trying to rank for it. And one of those websites could potentially be demoted by, by Panda. Um, and most likely, given that um, Medium's massive, it's probably going to be my site that has a Panda issue. Now, I can't prove that for you, and I don't know what the actual numbers are that, you know, is it 10 blog posts? Is it 100 blog posts before Google starts paying this kind of attention? But that's one of the risks that you make. Medium's got a, a section on their terms of service that actually tell us that it's against 
their recommendations to um, be using the cross-domain canonical for uh, SEO reasons. Um, and so I, you know, they say, let's see here. Site policies prohibit posting content primarily to drive traffic to or increase the search rankings of an external site, product, or service. Uh, and you can actually have your Medium account banned uh, if they find that you're using it primarily for SEO reasons. So the other thing that we don't know about this is what kind of effect it has on EAT. Um, if you're writing on any important topics that you're, you know, if it's a YMYL topic, Google really only wants to write uh, to rank content if they can see that, ah, this website is a trustworthy authority on this uh, content. Now, Medium, you know, it's unlikely that uh, Google is going to say, ah, yes, now we see that Medium is the trusted authority on your content. You want Google to see that your brand is the trusted authority. And so you really don't want it to happen where both the Medium post and your post is ranking um, because we don't know, is Google actually attributing things that they look for in terms of EAT to your blog post? Uh, if they're seeing you as a duplicate of Medium, then, uh, you know, that's probably not going to help you at all. Um, and if they're seeing Medium as the uh, official source that they're ranking um, above yours, that's not going to help your EAT, most likely. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't uh, know about exactly how that works. So um, the other thing to take into consideration here is the canonical tag is not a steadfast rule. Um, it's sometimes honored, it's not always honored. And so I think that's the most important thing here is that you would be putting a lot of risk, there'd be a lot of risk because you're putting a lot of trust in the fact that search engines are gonna honor this canonical uh, tag. So should you do it? Um, I can see why, you know, some people might say to do it. Uh, I would say no. It just, it doesn't sit right with me. And basically you're relying on Google to, um, you know, maybe take this signal. And if you do it at a big enough scale to make a difference, I think it could trigger Panda. So I don't think it's a good idea. Um, you know, might be specific to your situation. There might be more details that I need to know, but I don't think it's a good idea. Now, the second part of your question was whether you should publish your own, like a mini hub. I'm trying to think of an example. Like if I look at my own website and EAT was a big issue, uh, and I think one of our keywords is like EAT and SEO. Um, so, you know, what if I created a website called EATandSEO.com and everything is optimized towards ranking for that particular term? The problem again, and this is very meta, is that that website would be lacking in EAT, even though I was talking about EAT. Maybe I used the wrong example to talk about here. Um, but it's mariehaines.com that's known as like, oh yeah, Google referred to their content on EAT and lots of experts when they talk about EAT, they mention mariehaines.com's content. Um, and so in order for me to have a microsite or some type of a hub domain, you know, this EAT and SEO.com and I've canonicalized things back to mariehaines.com, it's not going to help me rank better for those terms. I would really recommend that you work on uh, your own website's EAT and really anytime there's something where it's like, ooh, this is a little trick that might convince Google to think we're more authoritative, it's not recommended.
to do it. Um, so <laughs> that was a long answer to uh, to my thoughts on that. I'm, I'm not saying I have all the answers, though. So if you disagree with me on that, again, feel free to tweet at me and uh, uh, we can have a little discussion on that. Um, so that's all. That was a really long episode. I'm sorry we're going near an hour here, but and I'm losing my voice even. Um, it's something uh, you might be interested in, and I did an interview with Barry Schwartz on Search Engine Land, along with uh, Olga from Semrush and Dr. Pete from Moz and Morty Oberstein from Rank Ranger. We talked all about what we think Google's algorithms are doing. Uh, so we've linked to that in newsletter as well. Um, and we also have uh, a new resource page uh, with all of the information that's been in newsletter regarding coronavirus. So if you're confused about what's the latest going on with Google My Business or, you know, why can't I get reviews working or who was that person who ran this uh this group to help SEOs find jobs. We, we've got loads of stuff there. So uh, we've linked to that in newsletter as well. I'm, uh, I'm keen to finish this podcast. There was a big Fortnite update today. And uh, I've heard rumors that uh, they've made changes to skill-based matchmaking, which make it a lot more fun. So I'm going to be spending uh, a couple of hours this afternoon just kind of relaxing and playing Fortnite and stomping on a bunch of teenagers, I guess. But, uh, oh, gosh, I love that game so much. If you're not into Fortnite, it's such a great way to get your mind off of what's happening in the world. Um, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just kind of crazy for being a, a 40 plus year old woman playing a, a kid's game, but I love it <laughs> immensely. Anyways, I hope that everybody is doing okay. Thanks again for listening. And I really do wish you the best of luck with your rankings. Mm-hmm.